Hello and welcome back to season two of the Loose Change podcast. I'm your co-host Niaz and I am delighted to be able to bring this podcast back to you. I just want to say for everyone that has been listening to us for a while, thank you so much for being patient with us. Um, We have been working behind the scenes and uh, putting in loads of effort to bring you some amazing conversations that we've been having. Um, There is also a video segment to this now. Um, So we're going to be uploading the audio This is the plan anyway, so do try and hold us accountable. We're going to be uploading the audio every Monday morning um, and then the corresponding video on YouTube as well. So you can catch the video um, element and video version of these episodes online too. Um, And also we have now changed it slightly such that we're going to try and have conversations with really interesting people, friends, connections from across different industries um, that basically are much smarter than us and can teach us about a few things Um, whether that's money, finances, or just sharing the experiences of young people, which we're always looking to platform. So on this week's episode, I'm speaking to one of my good friends, Rayan, Rayan Sheikh. Um, He's an active angel investor in the UK. Don't worry if you don't know what angel investing is. Um, You will learn that in this episode, but we talk about all things angel investing, venture capital, and how you might go about making money from startups. It's a super informative and interesting episode. Um, Rayan is one of my friends that has a real high appetite for risk and that has also led him to some amazing opportunities and great success Um, but I learned a great deal from this episode so without further ado this is episode one of season two of the Loose Change podcast enjoy welcome to Loose Change so in this episode I'm delighted to be joined by my friend Rayan Sheikh director of business development at PitchBook an active angel investor in the UK Today, we're going to be talking about how to invest in startups and why anyone would consider risking large sums of their capital on companies that are just starting out. Sounds crazy. Um, Rayan's own investing journey is a unique one with experience investing in a number of alternative assets, strong liquidity from previous investment returns and a well-paying job and a very, very high appetite for risk. Rayan has been able to capitalize on the access to wealth that angel investing can offer, but more on this shortly. Ryan, welcome to Loose Change. Thank you for having me, Nas. Glad Pleasure to have you. Always, man. Um, so I've been meaning to get you on for ages just to talk about the world of angel investing. I think it's something that people hear about and don't really have any idea what it involves. Um, but obviously, as we know and as we've learned, for a reserve few, it is access to um, a really special um, accumulation of wealth. But not many people are aware of it and don't really get involved in it. So we want to find out a bit more about how you got involved into angel investing in the UK. Um, but the whole world of startups, how did you even get introduced to it? Yeah, it's funny. I know most of the topic was going to be about angel investing in the UK, but the first deal I actually did was a dating app in Nigeria. Really? Um, so I got into that first. It's a company called True Flutter. Uh, I made a bit of commission in my current job and a close friend of mine from school actually opened up a business in Dubai, which is focusing on Middle East and Africa. And he actually brought this opportunity to me. And I thought, why not have a call? So I initially had a call with um, this company, yeah, as mentioned, True Flutter. And I thought the founder was amazing. The product was unbelievable. So I actually did it the wrong way around. I didn't actually learn about my ecosystem that much yeah. in the first place. But when I did that, I realized later that there was no tax incentive with that initial investment. But funnily enough, that's actually one of my portfolio that's doing so well. Who would have thought? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm so grateful that I did it. But it actually pushed me in the direction to focus on the UK first. Then I got to learn about all the tax incentives available. 
Yeah, the, the, that's how it started, yeah. That's amazing. So like, I'm going to take the role of the complete novice when it comes to, and I've learned a great deal from you anyway, um, when it comes to like angel investing, the startup ecosystem. And I've got a few friends that work in and around um, uh, the industries as well. But someone coming to you with an investment opportunity in a startup, and let's say you're a complete beginner, which you were at some point, you just think, wait, what? Like, how do, how do I even do this? How do I get started? Because it's not the same. They're not listed companies. You can't just go and buy a share the same way you would um, with other more accessible traditional investments into companies. I guess it would be useful firstly to understand, like, I guess in a quite open way, when these opportunities first came to you, did you sort of like figure it out by just jumping in or how, how did you go about learning about? Yeah, so I probably did it the wrong way around. I actually put my money in first before I knew had a clue what I was doing. Um, because I think a lot of people these days, they try to become an advisor take shares in people's businesses. By the end of the day, what a startup actually needs is money to get up the ground and running. Um, so typically, yeah, I, I put my money in first, but then after the first investment, I learned about deal terms. And that's what pushed me towards learning about the UK SEIS and EIS scheme. Yeah. So what I do now, whenever I see an early opportunity, I just need to make sure, are you EIS or SEIS approved? SEIS means there's 150,000 pounds worth of shares for an early stage startup. Yeah. that they can give to you and well give to the early investors and you get 50% back from the government. That's yeah. Perhaps when the well typically it's when the funding round closes but the easiest way is when you do your tax returns. And then there's a few million available. I believe it's a few million in EIS. Mm -hmm. So with that you get 30% back from the government. So yeah, pretty much if I'm looking for a UK business in the early stage seed stage space I will look to make sure at least I'll get um, some money back from the government. Yeah, that's so that's that's something that I learned like fairly early on, which was like blew my mind, right? So people are incentivized if you're if you're cash rich and you're high net worth relatively or you're or you're or you're liquid, um, you're invest you're incentivized to invest in startups because actually the money that you're risking in your um, investment, um, the government actually through tax breaks returns some of that investment back to you. Exactly. Yeah. But the investment stays. Yeah, exactly. So so you're slashing your risk. So that's something that no one, or, or like many people that um, aren't, are outside the, the frame of investing in startups have no idea about. Because obviously you just look at it and you think, super high risk investment. How can I make money on here if I'm risking 10, 20 grand, which is a lot of money for most people. Um, but then also there's these opportunities to gain and, and cut some of that risk by getting the money back through SEIS and EIS. Yeah, exactly. And also if the company goes bust, can't remember the exact amount you get back from the government, but you also get, I don't know, I think it's like 30 or 40% back on additionally. Yeah. So I, again, I did, I did learn that from, from one of my friends and he was saying that in some cases, and correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but there are instances where you can be 90% covered. Yeah, I think um, it's, around, it's around 90%. Which is insane, because yeah. when you think of um, the amount of capital that you're having to stake or risk, um, people don't often consider that you could get 90% of it back if a company was to completely go bust. Yeah. Provided you're covered by all of the tax breaks. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, That's I know, insane. right? That's why when people say it to me, it's like completely mental doing it. Yeah. I don't think it is at all. Yeah. Getting most of my money back, well, let's say 50% hypothetically. Yeah. Um, and then the beauty of it is the amount you learn. Yeah. Because you get to know these interesting founders and I've probably got like more, slightly north of 10 in yeah. the portfolio at the moment. Yeah. And I have a great relationship with every single founder. So on top of getting the tax returns and learning about the deal terms, 
and actually learning about really cool businesses. I only invest in the stuff that I actually like and enjoy. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy spending time with the founder and I go for people that I enjoy spending time with as well. Yeah. Uh, people don't appreciate that as much, but at the end of the day, you start to really like the founders you're dealing with. Yeah, for sure. So for you sure. want to get to know them, you want them to do really well. Yeah. Um, so that's the beauty of it as well. Yeah, people spend so much money on like an MBA, for instance. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, what yeah. return do you really get from that rather yeah. than hands-on experience in in a startup, for instance, like the yeah. 10 companies I've invested into, I've learned a lot more than perhaps many exams that I've done before. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. I completely appreciate that as well. And also, obviously, without, uh, I think that being first and foremost, a really important feature of like why you invest. But if, you're, if your risk is covered significantly, but your upside potential isn't capped, um, people do make significant amounts of wealth by getting into startups early, the people that got into your Ubers, your Revoluts, um, before they became like unicorn companies. They were the ones who made serious money because yeah. they, they managed to get in as um, early stage angel investors um, or slightly later, but still early stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing I would say as well, I think what I've learned more recently now, I've had a little bit more experience than early on. Like a, a investor typically in the seed stage will get diluted by mm -hmm. 50 to 75% when the company exits. And what I mean by that is, you lose the percentage you have in that company over time. So let's say you put in um, 25,000, uh, let's say a 2.25 million valuation. I'm going to mess up on the maths here, but let's say yeah. hypothetically you've got 2% in a company. Um, what ends up happening is you get diluted 50 to 75% by the time it exits. So you need to learn how to work that out. Okay. So as an early investor, perhaps I wasn't too uh, cognizant of this at the beginning, but as time went on, I realized it's important. Well, this is good advice for any startup out there. If you know, okay, it's, gonna, it's only got the potential of a 20, 30 million exit. Yeah. That risk capital isn't really worth the risk reward that you're going to get anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's something to be cognizant as an early angel is, yeah, you can throw in those 20, 25K tickets, but the risk reward has to be there for you as well. How would you go about figuring that out, whether it was worth it? And as you're getting, and please, like, I'm going to ask you really dumb questions for someone who's an experienced investor in this space, because I, I, I want it to be sort of explained through. Um, as you're getting diluted, are you getting paid out on, on your primary investment that you've made? Or are you just getting um, diluted because there's more people buying in? Yeah, you're getting diluted because there's more people buying in at a higher valuation. Okay. So even though you're not getting any money back at this stage, there are times, let's say it goes to the latter round, mm -hmm. you can potentially sell in the secondary market to an, another buyer. But this isn't always the case. It can be a little bit complicated sometimes, but that is one avenue sometimes that can work. But typically you're waiting for the company to eventually exit. Okay. Um, and yeah, the valuation goes up. And then, yeah, that's hopefully where you'll see the returns. Okay. And But your initial stake that you put in, even if you are getting diluted, is increasing in value. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and there's always like the, and I guess that's always the benefit of getting in early. Exactly, yeah. So you can see one going from that 2.25 and then it goes for, so there's pre-seed and seed, which is pretty much the same round. Mm. Let's say a typical value is 2.5 million, 3 million. Within six months when it goes to series A, there's, there's been ones that have literally gone to 40 million, 50 million. That's within six months, 12 months time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can see the return, even though you're getting diluted, it has to correlate to the valuation of the company. Yeah. In, in comparison to the amount you have within that company. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's really good to know. That's really interesting. So let's say for anyone hearing this, and I've, I've certainly been in this boat as well, they think of, right, investing in startups. I've only just flipping started investing in the stock market. 
um, but I've got a bit of cash saved. Um, no idea where to start, but traditionally you think anyone who's an angel investor, like the, the, the term in itself has some mysticism around it. Isn't it something that's just like the reserve for the ultra rich? Um, I don't think so. To be honest, if you want to get to know the industry, there's a bunch of syndicates out there where you can get access to deals and you can put smaller tickets in like 5,000, 6,000. And during that, you can really learn on what is a good opportunity because the fund manager who has access to the deal, so the, so the firm that basically has put this deal towards people, yeah. it can go into a syndicate where a company will then raise X amount mm. through individuals who can put in sometimes like three, 4,000 each. Yeah. That's a pretty good way to start learning about it. Yeah. Okay. Rather than going in full, full throttle straight away. Yeah, no, and that's something that surprised me because I just thought everyone who's an angel investor is just very rich and like, yeah. it's got loads of money to like, gamble and lose. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's interesting to see that even this space is being democratized. But I think with that in mind, it's still important to understand for like the majority of the public that like even five, six K is, is, is a significant amount for most people to save up um, and then stake in investing. Um, which is why I think it'd be useful to hear like a bit more about your story and how you became um, an angel investor to start with and how you sort of um, started to accumulate your wealth to then be like, okay, I'm going to be an active angel investor. Um, yeah. If yeah. you're happy to share your journey. Yeah, no worries, man. So literally two, three years ago, um, I started work at PitchBook Data where the commission structure is pretty high. Um, and essentially what happened was, actually, I'll, I'll go back even further than that. I, I want to hear the, I hear the, yeah, crypt, yeah, yeah. the crypto stories. Man. Yeah, so actually I started at a company called NCC Group selling escrow, which is super boring. <laughs> selling secure, like IT security. I can't even remember what I was doing now, to be honest. Um, but during that period, I was so bored and I was just reading so much about crypto. And I had a good friend of mine who actually lived on my road who actually made quite a lot of it during uni, which is quite impressive. So I was, I was speaking to him. And then what happened was I basically spent all my money, all my uh, wages when I was living at home straight after university on crypto, went up a bit. Then I literally lost nearly all of it. I think I put like Ethereum, Litecoin, Bitcoin, this one called Propy, literally had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> and then I've made loads of mistakes. So when the market was going down, I was trying to catch fallen daggers, which as a new one has got older, just something you don't do. But thankfully I did that. I didn't get burnt too much. So when the second round came and I had a little bit more capital for my next job, um, it was I think it was at the beginning of COVID. I went, um, I was playing tennis during COVID with a friend of mine called uh, Jack Tunney. And essentially, we were just playing tennis every single day. I've known him since school. And he said, Ryan, build your bags, build your bags. And I was like, all right, no problem. So I literally put all my wages in again into like Ethereum, Bitcoin. And at this point, all right, let's, let me just stress the and add to the story. Like at this point, when you've already lost a shitload of money in crypto before, um, but you're you're like you're thinking, ah, oh, fuck, I'm going to put all my wages into crypto again. Yeah. Was there anyone telling you you're being an idiot? I don't even think I told anyone to be honest. <laughs> I think I just did it myself. Um, but the thing is, I always believed on it as an ethos. Like it's quite anti-establishment, which is kind of the era that we're going through now. Yeah. So as a in from that sense, even though the use case wasn't really there, yeah, I believed in it as an anti-establishment kind of angle. Yeah. So. Yeah, and that, that's the way I'm with a lot of things. So yeah, I just put in all my money. I didn't even have that much at the time, by the way. I probably had like one decent month at work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, put everything in. And then during that time, you could get tipped quite easily on like tweets and people just who knew. And then stuff. this was this was during COVID, right? The very beginning so, of so COVID. It, yeah. This was just before the crazy. Yeah, before yeah, that. Yeah, I think Bitcoin okay. might have been three grand. Ethereum was like a few hundred. Mm. So literally, I was putting everything into it. And then um, within a few months, it was literally just going mad. Mm. 
Yeah. I can remember there was one called like Stella Lumens, right? I think it's still about, I've not really checked it. But a friend of mine told me Stella's about to fly tomorrow. I was like, okay, cool. So I put in all my money and then in like 10x in a day. And I told all my friends as well. Oh my <laughs> they were all buzzing at that as well. So yeah, it wasn't even based on many market fundamentals. Very early on, it was actually very rumor driven. Yeah. Um, so I just took advantage of that, to be honest. And yeah, and yeah. I'd been through the cycle before. So yeah, that's what I kept doing. So then that actually gave me a pool of liquidity. Yeah. And then on top of that, while I had that pool, work started going really well. And I started getting like quite decent commission at the same time. And I thought, okay, what should I do with my money? So, so this is the first time that you'd acquired like a pot of like cash where you could be like, I have some money to play with now. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And okay. a lot of people would say, yeah, go buy a house. Yeah. I really just couldn't comprehend buying a house with all that capital because you get taught growing up, like the next step is do well at work, save enough money to buy a house. But I really don't think that's the best methodology to like go to your next stage. Yeah. How much you might put in a hundred thousand pounds for a house. Yeah. But then you're not liquid. Yeah. So I, I, and to pause there, of all my friends, and I have like people like across the various like, or across the spectrum of like risk appetites as well, and just like approach to finances, all of them are doing really well. So it's really interesting to see how people like position themselves. And I really like enjoy your take on things as well because of like how it's worked out for you. Um, yeah, and I, and I sort of like appreciate that perspective because it's because I think most people do, and we've learned this like through millennial money and like these changes that people see buying a house as the destination. Yeah, and actually, it's 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 very much the start, um, and it's just because of how difficult it has become to attain in our generation. We don't realize that that's that's your first major major liability. Yeah, um, I think the biggest issue with this house conundrum is. People almost think, oh, uh, you've gone to to a certain status level just yeah. because you've bought a house. Mm. But it, you've taken on loads of debt and it's just a load of nonsense. People thinking that uh, I've managed to get a house in London, therefore I've gone to the next stage of my life. Mm. It's just not true at all, absolutely. in my opinion, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and, and that's from someone like who's in a, in a home buying process as well. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Um, but continuing with the story, you're you've now made like a significant amount of money in that crypto boom, yeah. which I'm very jealous about because <laughs> I, I came in halfway through. Um, and you, you're liquid for the first time, and then obviously works. You're starting to like earn some real serious money at work as well. Yeah, and you're thinking, right, how do I utilize this cash? So actually, I would say I got quite lucky in some ways because the company I'm at is actually at the in a space where I'm selling to like private equity, venture capital, M&A, mm. the crypto space itself as yeah. well. So I was gathering a lot of knowledge yeah. in the meantime. And while I was doing that, I was also building up a pretty big network. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say the network was key because that, as I mentioned, the, um, the Nigerian opportunity uh, came to me via a friend mm. who actually initially had a call with me about work. Yeah. And he had this mandate, which is an opportunity he was representing on his table. Uh, so he put it to me and then I invested within 24 hours. Yeah. So that was like the first experience that I had. So like, so let's say, right, you've, you've just put like, let's, for example, you put like 15 grand in, right? Your, your first investment. It could be yeah. more, could be less, but let's say for example. But it's not the same as like buying shares. Yeah. In a, like how, like I, obviously I wouldn't now because I know about it, but being like completely new to it, I'd just be like, wait, I've just bought 15K of something, but I don't know, like, what is the governance involved? Like, how do you know that you've like, so thing. you'll get sent a term sheet and you'll be sent over all the shares and everything. Okay. Um, yeah, in, like, so in like tangible document form. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you'll get all of that. Okay. I found it a bit strange at first there when it was in Nigeria because I, I was struggling to send the money over in the first place. <laughs> so then I was thinking, 
Have I actually, like, what am I supposed to process here? But I learned a lot from that, actually. Uh, I had to go, I can't even remember how I sent it over now. But yeah, I can't even yeah, remember. No. But yeah, it was a really interesting process how I was sending it over to them in the first place. And how do you keep track? Because obviously, for, for people that invest in other assets, yeah, um, for the most part, they can kind of keep track of like where their investments are, what they're doing. And in a sense, I quite like to be, or have something where you're a bit more hands-off, right? Because yeah. there's no... There's no daily valuation of your assets, but you're, I guess yeah. it's the founders that you're... To be honest, I completely agree with you that even though uh, I do a lot of angel investing, I wouldn't say that my sole purpose is just to go into the venture capital market. Mm. You need to always hedge against different markets. Um, so for example, I've got public stocks, I've got public funds, I've got crypto, I've got the um, obviously the startups as well, which I'm probably overly exposed to at the moment in this yeah. market. But I think the key to always understand is don't be overly exposed to one space. Mm -hmm. So even though we're talking about angel investing now, I think it's actually really important to focus on other asset classes as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm looking at Coloured Rocks at the moment, for instance. What? Yeah, yeah. Coloured Rocks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember I told you we got yeah, a trip yeah. in Pakistan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're going to Balochistan for a little trip. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see what's available. That's sick. That's sick. Yeah. No, no. It's, and do you, do you think that um, with your angel investing, have you started to like consider investing across different... Um, verticals and sectors and industries as well? Yeah, to be honest, I would say I'm pretty industry agnostic. Originally, I thought I was going to be quite good with healthcare. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I thought, because my dad's a doctor and uh, I'm from a family of medics, but actually I knew absolutely nothing <laughs> about it. And I probably embarrassed myself in a few calls when I realized I just need to stay <laughs> away from this. You know too much about medicine. Yeah, yeah, but the thing is they come up with some mad hypothesis and I'm thinking, how do I verify this? Because I have to see different regions, surveys, uh, there's loads of different regulation in every country. Yeah. So I realized I haven't got a clue what I'm talking that about. So, so I just stayed away from it. It's so funny you say that because obviously I, I met one of your founders and we were introduced as a, as a great contact, say, and he, he, he was a doctor. And he thought about getting into like health tech and everything. And he said he was completely put off as well. Yeah, you, so often get that. you often get that with people. Yeah, you like, do. You do. You, when it comes to anything healthcare related, because it's so fluid and there's so much regulation there, what you need is um, a real expert within the regulation space there. Yeah. Well, there, I'm sure there's a few other things as well. Um, but yeah, you need somebody who's got real expertise in that space to either be advising you or doing the deal themselves i wouldn't really recommend going into something like this yeah yeah fair no that's that's really interesting so what do you look for when you're investing in a startup mm, i think the most important thing because you're taking on the risk they can send you their financials but then the way it's a load of rubbish isn't it like it's endless absolute nonsense if they say we're going to make x amount of money by this date it's, it's just a load of rubbish but what i look for is is the founder going to do what he roughly says yeah. uh is he malleable is he going to take advice on really experienced members around him i also think okay how is his market knowledge how deep is the market what kind of exits are available what's their sales strategy because for instance let's say it's a company that sells to 10 companies in the uk the close rate needs to be super high yeah because if they burn that and then their return isn't going to be great. Their annual recurring revenue is going to be really low. But then if there's a huge market of, I don't know, I was going to give a random example of like thousands of companies to sell to or like millions of companies to sell to, you know, the close rate has to be quite small. Yeah. And then the, the potential upside is if they get going, they can, get, they can start selling more. to a lot of people and the scale's there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And or then, if you're selling to like government entities or universities, yeah. universities and government entities are a pain in the ass to sell to. <laughs> so if they're selling to them, it's quite off-putting. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Um, and then the other thing that I always hear is when um, investing in startups, people are actually investing in the founder. Yeah. 
rather than obviously you're investing in the business as well but a, a lot of it is down to like how charismatic and how believable the founder is in, in what they're selling is that something that you you'd say yeah absolutely absolutely and one thing that i fully believe if the founder can't sell the vision mm. then i will just never invest in them mm -hmm. for some reason there's a couple early stage companies that i've had before where they send an advisory body to represent the company and i'm thinking if you can't sell your own company yeah and the whole purpose of me getting involved anyway is to learn off these interesting founders yeah so yeah completely think that's uh, really valid yeah yeah and like even as like a we, we, so for millennial money um Shaq and I, we've, ne we've not really thought about raising capital. We've had like conversations, but I think we enjoy like bootstrapping it at this stage. But even jumping on calls where you're having to do sales calls for so many things anyway, but when we're, whenever we're talking about millennial money and some of our products and offerings to businesses and clients, it's such an easy conversation to have because it's what we're doing day in and day out and what we've had to build, build up from, from the ground up. Um, and then obviously when I'm having to run pitches or presentations for things which aren't my own, it's, it is a bit, there's a, more, there's a lot more friction. So yeah. it, sh it should come easier to founders when they're trying to sell their own vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing. And, and I completely rate that you guys are bootstrapping because you always want to know from the founder's perspective how much sweat equity they're putting into the business themselves. Yeah. If they're not putting in any cash themselves, like why should, they, why should an investor invest in them and they're not even, they clearly don't believe in it from not putting in their savings. Yeah, yeah. And if that is their end goal, they want to be a unicorn company, and that's what they want to do, and that's their absolute passion, they should be chucking everything in there. And um, I think one common mistake that, and it was very easy to raise money last year, which is going to be very different this year. Mm -hmm. My advice to a lot of startups is just bootstrap for a lot longer. Uh, make sure you've got numbers to show rather than being too conceptual these days, because I think last year might have worked. We're, in it, we're currently in the bear market quite clearly. There's a recession coming through. Yeah. Uh, people want to see numbers. They don't want to just hear about some yeah, crazy some, story. I saw some funny um, video on LinkedIn um, about someone taking the piss out of VCs when last year they like had all this budget and they were like, yeah, go out. We need to make sure you party. <laughs> and then to the, this year they're like... Um, Oh, are you sure you need to yeah are you sure you need to have a social like we've got someone here who can just like come in and like entertain your employees <laughs> and stuff and the change in the vc market as well because last year money was just being thrown around yeah um and obviously this year runs a, a lot more um they're scrutinizing everything a lot more yeah they are they're still sat in a lot of dry powder which is capital available left in mm. their funds but they're a little bit more coy than they were last year so what yeah what i'll just Definitely recommend this year for the startups who are struggling to fundraise is just bootstrap for a little bit longer mm -hmm. and try to be more intelligent with your marketing, your sales strategy. Try to have some interesting strategic partnerships out there. Yeah. Your angels, don't just take money off them. Try to take money off somebody that's actually going to give you their network. So this is a really interesting point. So I learned this off of um, another friend who's she was talking for her company, Amalia. You might have heard of Amalia. They they raised um, they raised money a few years ago, and she's actually writing something at the moment. And she talks about the idea of smart money and dumb money. Yeah. So there's dumb money, which is people that will invest in your company and just be like, yeah, piss off now, like go and make me some more money. And then there's smart money where people actually like invest into your company and then want to help you make more money and actually help you as an advisor. Um, is that something that you think people should be conscious of or just take what they can get? It depends on the situation, but I do think they should be cognizant of it because if their opportunity is great, there will be people there mm -hmm. looking to invest, but you don't want someone investing just for the tax incentive. 
Because if they're there just for the tax incentive and they don't really care about the founder and the return they're going to get on them, that can be kind of classified as dumb money in yeah. some ways if there was other investors wanting to invest and would have brought a network with them. Yeah. So yeah, there is good and good and yeah, good and bad money you can take. But yeah, but sometimes you have to just take what you can get, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. but I would focus on strategic partnerships with investors that are going to put their money into the company, not just act as an advisor. And then they're going to introduce you to the network. They're going to introduce you to venture capital firms in series A. They're going to introduce you to their family offices with big pockets. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Maybe help them with the sales strategy, help them with their marketing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's important as well for us to talk about like some of the numbers and stats when it comes to startups, because the truth is most startups don't make a lot of money. Um, obviously, everyone has this romanticism of like, I'm going to be a startup founder. I'm going to be I'm going to make millions and I'm just going to work for myself. Like it is hard to yeah. like run a business. It's hard to make it profitable and it's hard to make it like grow exponentially. Um, and some of the numbers I remember you shared with me, it, it was it like nine out of 10 startups don't end up. Yeah, paying. pretty much, pretty much. And that's why <clears throat> from an investor's point of view, you want to get into the top 10% of the deals available. Mm -hmm. So let's say there's 90% that are all mediocre tier two, tier three, tier four onwards. But then you want to get into those top 10 deals that you know the top dogs are going to invest in in Series A. So that's yeah. the key from a sourcing point of view. You want to make, otherwise there's no point doing it. Yeah. If you're going to go after the ones who aren't in that top 10%, as an investor, you're probably not going to get a return. Yeah. How do you, how would you scope that out? Is it, because is it quite subjective? Like, how would you decide like, what's a sick investment? Because someone like me, let's say me, I'm like a complete novice idiot who's just like sitting on a bit of cash, which I'm not. In this market, um, but um, neither am I. I'm getting, <laughs> getting dopey at the moment. Yeah, but um, but I'm like, yeah, like I, I see this company that I like, but I can't give you my reasoning for it. I just like the company. I feel like it's something that I would personally spend money on. So for a long time, my investment ethos, not for startups necessarily, but just generally, was: is this a company that I, first of all, am I a customer in it? Is it someone that I would generally give my money to anyway without investing in it? And do I see like a viable future for it? And then I spend my money on investing in it. Yeah. Um, but like, how would you, obviously as someone who's more of like an experienced investor in in startups and businesses before they're widely available to, yeah. to the market, how would you go about finding out what a good company is? To us, I'm still learning as it goes on as well, to be honest. Um, I've only been doing it for a few years, but I think over time I'm getting more co uh, cognizant of kind of different industries or verticals it can break into. Mm. So if it's quite pigeonholed to like one specific industry, yeah. it's quite difficult for it to go to a unicorn level, which is a billion yeah. valuation. Um, so I think it's really important to see the scale mm. of a company. I think it's important to see, is there a need for it? Yeah, I try to really understand, is the market deep enough? Yeah, And then, yeah, there's a few other things that I look into, like who do they sell to? Are those types of people quite easy to sell to? Um, I find out their strategy, what they're going to be doing with the money. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of a lot of companies, for example, don't actually for some reason they neglect the business development marketing side. Yeah. I don't know why they think the other sides are more important, but yeah. actually, if you don't know how to sell, you ain't going to get a return at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true. Um, and how do you hold your founders accountable? Is that is that something that you because it's not that easy? I remember watching. <laughs> I watched an interview of, do you know who Mark Cuban is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was on Full Send podcast and he was talking about like, because uh, he's on Shark Tank, which is their version of Dragon's Den as well. And they were like, oh, like, have you like just made loads of money on Shark Tank? 
he was like, nah, man, I lost a lot of pee as well. <laughs> and he goes, one of his like big investments um, he gave out, one of his first ones on Shark Tank. And then he was like on Instagram and the founder was just like in Ibiza, um, in, in like partying, like in different places. And he'd be calling the founders like, what the hell are you doing? And the founder was like, oh, I'm just networking, man. <laughs> and that's where he's obviously ended up losing yeah, his money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because he just spent like his million dollar investment just going out. Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, I'm not big enough of a cheese to yeah, hold obviously. too accountable. No, no, obviously that's obviously that's different because it's Mark Cuban. But like, do you have a system in place where you try to be like, right, in a way that's almost gonna help them by holding them to account? Right. In a way, I, I wouldn't say so because I'm just an angel with a small ticket in comparison to some of the big dogs, but I like to invest with ones that are putting in the big tickets. Okay. So let's say there's some pretty strong seed venture capital firms or family offices yeah. who will take most of the round or lead it. I won't be holding them accountable, but because they've got a lead investor, I know that's going to be dealt yeah. with. Yeah. Do, would you say then, and, and obviously this could be quite hypothetical, um, the lead investors that are putting in sizable chunks of their money, do you think they often hold founders to account? And I guess this is kind of like taking it from a founder's view. If someone is raising capital or thinking about raising capital, how does it, when they when they take that money on from investors, some founders fear that, oh, I'm going to feel like I'm working for someone again. Yeah. But is, is there like a, a standard where people are held to account in any way? Yeah, to be honest with you, one issue is a lot of VCs do do the startups over. Mm. And it's something they need to be cognizant of from the beginning. Mm. And totally aware of. But then you have got some brilliant VCs out there that will really look after them as well. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the uh, Curate guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're fantastic. Yeah. And I've uh, been speaking to them for a long time. They really look after their portfolio. So if you're a, an interesting startup um, out there, I recommend hitting up Curate Capital. Yeah, they're great. I've spoken to the guys as yeah. well. Yeah. No, really, really excited to see how they kick off their VC fund as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think. And you as an investor, so one thing, and obviously I'm not going to, I'm going to speak on your behalf, but uh, as, a, as a friend as well, like I, I know that you're very proactive for your founders because um, as soon as you've invested in something, I, I've probably got a call within the, <laughs> within the week, like, can you do something for these guys? Yeah, and that's yeah, something yeah. I've spoken to some of your founders about as well. And I think they really appreciate that because yeah. I think I've, I've worked with um, a load of founders in a number of capacities and startups, actually. Um, I, w I did like a secondment at a startup accelerator. And there's a few things that they appreciate. They appreciate first and foremost, they need money, right? They yeah. need money to actually do the do the stuff that they're planning on doing and building what they're planning on building. But also they really appreciate like the advisory capacity and like any help that they can get because they're having to wear every hat um, at the start. They're having to like build the business, sell the business, um, and also like fulfill all of its business operational functions. So any hand that they can get, they do really appreciate. Yeah. So um, I would say for people who are in a position to be angel investors, founders would appreciate someone like you to be proactive and actually you leverage your own network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th I think it's the most, then that's one of the value adds I always try to do whenever I can is I'll bring them my network, any opportunity that I see that's relevant to them, I'll mm. bring it to them, anybody that I know, I'll give them a call if you can help. One of the starters, but the beauty of it is if you've got one of those golden ones in your portfolio yeah, yeah. and you help them so early on, you end up getting even better deals on your table. So yeah. like within the last year or so, I'd say the opportunities coming my way have been even better over time. Yeah. Because the top deals out there, everybody wants to invest in them, right? Yeah. They haven't got that much of an issue fundraising. But it's quite useful that you've had decent experience with other startups that somebody will come to you and say, I know you did such a helpful job for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. 
are you interested in taking SEIS, which is 50% off, which how yeah, much prefer yeah. doing? Yeah, it's mad. It's crazy. Um, so it's, they say that to make money from startups, like you should aim and there's a, there, there is a metric and obviously it's not like um, completely, uh, it's not an exact science um, uh, to be applied, but you should aim to invest in 10 startups if you're an angel, because one of them might exit and that's where you make up for the rest, right? Yeah. That's generally the, the play. Uh, in how it works is, and is that an approach that you've adopted as well i think it was initially i think when i initially started that was my approach or is that just generally like the number that you thought in your head you want to reach 10 um well there's a, there's a few people that i spoke to before i knew too much about it and what i did was uh yeah i just thought i need to get 10 but then when i was thinking deeply i think a hedge fund success rate is like 60 or 70 percent mm. whereas a good vc will get like i don't know probably like 30 percent maybe which is quite a good return so initially, I was thinking, if I get 10, I'll have one exit in there. But I think, yeah, I probably changed my perception over time. Okay. I'd rather pick opportunities that are really good. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Okay. In the top 10% of deals. Okay. Okay. That's a really good way to think about it. It's like... But previously, yeah, that was my initial ethos at the beginning. Yeah. Okay. No, that, I think that's a better way to think about it. That there isn't an exact science to... But the but the, the stats suggest yeah. that you, you should aim for the top 10% because that's where the money's being made. Yeah. Um, and if you can find yourself in a position where you're getting most of those opportunities and deals, obviously you're much more likely exactly, to make yeah. more money. The other thing is, I think, which people should be aware of, the um, upside potential of making serious amounts of money is available when you're investing in startups for a number of reasons. As one we discussed is the tax breaks and, yeah. and the, the, the cut to your risk, your investment risk, because you're getting some of it back in EIS, SEIS. Um, but also because um, you're investing in a company that has uh, at an early stage that has the opportunity to seriously grow exponentially in value. Um, so you're not having to reach it once it's already like increased significantly in value and then the public are buying into it. Yeah, you're yeah, getting yeah. in earlier. Yeah. Um, but you always want that risk reward as well. Exactly. But, yeah, there, yeah. but there is a risk attached to it. And there's a reason we call startups um, the higher end of the risk um, spectrum, right? Um, and also another thing to consider is it's not a liquid investment, which is important for people to know. It's not something that you should just put your money in and if you need your money, you, you think you can take it out. It's, yeah. not, it's money that's locked away, unlike other investments, Yeah. Um, which is important for people to consider. And I completely agree with that. So, And also that the money you put into the venture capital landscape in the very early stage, you also have to have the appreciation that it could be money completely lost. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't sit well with you, then it's not really the right space yeah. for you to go into. Yeah, You have to just accept that, yeah, this could completely go and yeah. be like comfortable with that, even if it does go. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And obviously that's why people like, I guess, comes back to previous perceptions of, it's something that only the, the super rich frequent in because they're able to lose large sums of money. Yeah. But also the, the whole terms about like rich, staying rich and getting richer is because they're able to access these opportunities um, of serious wealth creation. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to know as well, obviously, based on like what you can share with us, like what kind of companies have you invested in? So there's um, one called Homie, that's a, you met say, right? Yeah, great so, guy. Yeah, founder. great guy. I was actually his very first investor. Um, it's a legal tech company that shortens the home completion process. Yeah. So they've got a really incredible software that enables you to pretty much get your keys within 72 hours. Yeah. Say, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's 50% of transactions fail once they've 
actually everything's been agreed upon. Yeah. And it can be a really laborious process. And you're in the process now, aren't you, right? Yeah. With the conveyancing lawyers, it's long, yeah, yeah, long yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got an interesting platform. That, that there's so much happening with the company at the moment. So yeah, more to come on that one. But that's yeah. a really interesting one. I've invested in one called uh, BioBuyer, which is rebranded. I was really factory. interested in that one when you told me about that one. Yeah, for, yeah. so basically it converts food waste into mealworms for pet food. So I got involved with that one quite early on. It was a young founder called Thomas, who's, who's actually so good. And yeah, there's loads of bits going on in that way. It's, it's more niche. Yeah. So the, the value proposition there is, yeah, super niche, but we've got, we, we're looking to break into the US market. Is it UK already. based? It's UK based, yeah. We're, we're going to be selling to the UK market. Uh, well, pretty much starts in August, I believe. I need to double check with Tom. Um, but then also, yeah, we're hopefully going to be breaking into the US market pretty soon. It. Yeah, so that's, that's another one. Good. Another one that actually is doing so well is an amazing founder called Ayu. Uh, the company's called True Flutter. It's an African dating app. I think when I started, again, Ayu, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like 5,000 users. Yeah. And now we, I think we surpassed like 120, 130,000. No yeah, already. Um, that's a Nigerian dating app. So yeah, watch that space as well. Is that is that only based in um, Nigeria or is it UK? That one's only based in Nigeria, but we they just broke into an, another African country and it just actually spiked there. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, 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 and to be honest, it's quite interesting because you'd think that the Western opportunities are really good, but mm. actually this emerging, magic- Emerging this, markets, right? Yeah, yeah, this emerging market, but this one particular, they're super professional. Everything they do is brilliant. And um, I've actually learned so much from him. Definitely one of the most I've learned from from somebody in the space, which is from IU, from True Flutter. That's amazing. That's All of his sick. reports are like bang on. That's sick. That's amazing. Um, I guess like more like tailored to you, what is next for you? Like obviously you've mentioned that you had this foray and there's been a great deal of like, I'd say um, luck that you've created as well in the opportunities that you've found and like the ways you've decided to utilize your capital. Um, but what's next? Like, what do you want to do now that you've you've got like a, a good portfolio of um, startups that you've invested in? Yeah. Um, what are your plans for the future? I don't think I'm going to be as aggressive in the startup scene as I was in the last couple of years. But I'm, if it, but I'm only going to pick opportunities that I really think are are better than the ones that I've currently got in my portfolio. Yeah. Um. So I'm always in the market for like super interesting opportunities. But yeah, I think I'm overexposed to the high risk stuff at the moment. Um, but when a good opportunity comes, I'll still go for it. Yeah, yeah. If it's really good, I'll definitely be a bit more coy than I was previously. Inflation's at nine point four percent now, right. isn't it? So it's mad. Um, so I think I need to be a little bit more careful. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking at other stuff at the moment. Ones that will basically help me not lose nine point four percent of money in my account because I'm still not going to keep money in my account. Yeah. Um, I only keep a very small amount of money in my account because essentially you're just pissing it away. This is actually a really interesting point because um, for someone that has invested significant, without putting figures on it, but like significant amounts of capital uh, across startups in their portfolio and then obviously other assets as well. Um, how much, like this is, for, for people curious, how much do you, in your personal sort of like appetite, do you like to hold in reserve as cash and the rest of your money is tends to be put away into investment? I probably only leave about four or 5,000 pounds in my, in my, in my actual bank account. Yeah. Um, pretty much the whole time, I am everything else I typically invest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, see, that's a, that's a very interesting. I don't know if it's the best way no, to no, do no, it. No, 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 there is no right way. A lot of people answer. call me an idiot for no, it, to no, be honest, but, it's, but, it, but, it's your, but then obviously it's paid off, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there isn't a right answer because it's all based on your appetite for risk from my perspective. 
Um, and obviously, the, the lower your appetite for risk, the more you want to increase that buffer. Yeah. Um, I'm not as extreme as you, but I would say compared to like most of my friends that I speak to, I'm also on the towards your end of the spectrum in that I try to put most of my money in different places, either investing or saving in different assets um, and keep a smaller buffer for myself. Yeah. Because my appetite for risk allows that. Um, but obviously for other people, I've had friends on here um, on the channel as well um, who are super, super risk averse where they would need to keep tens of thousands of pounds um, before making any serious like investments. Yeah. Um, because they can't stand to see the value of their investments fall even like a hundred pounds. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's completely different. The thing is as well, when some people ask me um, for investment advice, I just never give it to them. Yeah. I'll tell them like what I'm doing yeah. and I literally just say to them, look, I'm not a financial advisor. Great and answer. also if you lose it, I'm taking no liability at all. And actually I don't even want you to give me any shit because yeah. I've told you straight up, yeah. it's super high risk and it's completely on that person to make that decision. Yeah. The large disclaimer I'd say here is only invest if you're comfortable with losing it because mm. you're trying to make a gain. Mm. Therefore you have to give something in return yeah. Um, you can't just put money in and just be like, oh, this is going to go up. I'm going to do so well because it's just not the way the world works, really. Yeah. So you have, to be, you have to be comfortable with losing money. Mm. Um, and then you just decide how aggressive do you want to be or how risky do you want to be or how risk averse do you want to be? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a good way to go. And I think people should always um, do their own research. I think certainly Definitely. in the last and with the advent of like democratized investing, which is amazing, which is great. Loads of people are investing for the first time and getting into um, uh, uh, being able to invest for the first time and confident enough to. There, there is an idea that things go up and they just always go up. And naturally, over like a certain period of time, the trends do suggest that. But then as soon as there is any sort of shake yeah, in the market, yeah, yeah. people are like, wait, what the hell is happening? Like, like in and, crypto, when there were so many new investors in the, in, in the hype, some of them must have got completely wiped out. Yeah, yeah. But then the work, but it's those people who actually sell on the down. Mm. So they never should have invested in the first place. Yeah. Do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. If it's going to go down, then just be like, okay, fine. I, I'll back yeah. that. I still think in three to five years. Yeah. Good. You have exactly. to have that mentality. But if you're going to basically cry about it going down 20, 30%, then you have picked the totally the wrong in you have picked totally yeah. the wrong industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or wrong space, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's why we always sort of teach that risk and reward is uh, well, they're both intrinsically linked to each other. Yeah. Um, when it comes to investing, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be in a in a dangerous way. It can be in quite a positive symbiotic way. And that the higher the risk, um, usually reward is um, commensurate to that risk if you're yeah. able to. Um, manage your own emotional risk um, impulses and also if you've done like the fundamental research into the investment that's my thinking yeah um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah and that generally seems to be what i advocate i think at the moment is i could be wrong but it's more important to put money into some solid assets yeah yeah whether that be art for example i think me and you had a conversation yeah, yeah. about that um whether that be art whether that be colored rocks whether that be metals i don't actually know so like again not investment so this advice. is this is crazy because you're listing out our season two episode list we've got rayan who's been covering <laughs> angel investments we spoke about investing in art and we actually have an episode with some great guys about investing uh, into precious metals oh really that'd so be we're, super we're covering, interesting we're covering, we're covering different um assets that people can invest into that's in this series yeah. um and precious metals is a, is a really interesting one i just, just personally don't know enough about it yeah 
so yeah, I, I, even if I do take risk, I like to understand what I'm doing first. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's a space for sure to be looking into. Yeah, for sure. Um, and before I sort of like interrupted on your close on like what's next, like what and your plans for the future. Um, have you got any sort of like exciting plans for, I guess, your own financial future or anything else that you're doing at the moment? I think financial future, I'm holding tight, so looking for opportunities. Uh, but I think people can get too bogged away with progress in an economic sense. Mm. But I think the best thing to do, like me and you are going to go play football later. Yeah. It's enjoy your sport, read books, travel, enjoy yeah. your life. Don't just focus on economic gain or thinking, oh, this is too expensive. I need to save up for this or... Yeah. Um, or focusing too much of those types of things. Like actually enjoy yourself because when you're a happier person, your economic sense will, in my opinion, always be a little bit better. Yeah. If you're constantly stressed, you bring that into your life where problems will just arise. Yeah. But if you're like comfortable, happy, you're enjoying your time with your friends, you feel less stressed, the economic side will take care of itself. Yeah, I think I think it's true. And I think money and finances takes up so much of people's headspace, um, which is... An unfortunate thing because we're in society in times where we have to think about it so much because it, I, th I think a lot of people don't feel like they have enough. Um, a lot of the time they're always reaching. Um, so it's an important reminder that I guess our social and life experience is way beyond our finances as well. Yeah. Um, and, and to close, and I think you touched on it really um, nicely there as well. Um, we like to ask everyone a bit more about like any loose change that they'd like to share with our audience. Is there anything that you're reading or anything that you're watching, anything that's jokes that, that's, that's bothering your mind um, that you'd like to share with our audience? I'm going to put my hands up and say the Premier League season has just started. and You're killing like, me. I would like to avoid that at all costs. So. Why are we signing Rabiot? <laughs> Bro, why are we signing Rabiot? <laughs> and Altruic? Yeah, I don't yeah. I can't fine. actually believe it. That's United fine. fans out there, come on. I'm dying here. <laughs> I get laughed at. Every day, bro. Same, Living bro. with an Arsenal fan as well, guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, Killing me. I'm le I've muted all my group chats. Really? That's what I've done as well. I wish I wasn't a fan at times. Yeah, bro. Don't know why I'm so attached. Yeah. But anyway, I guess a joint loose change would be um, we'll be putting out survival packs for um, if you're really struggling with your football team. <laughs> so stay safe um, and we'll be back. Take care, guys. Appreciate it. See you later.